according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs. We just got started on Proverbs 21 last week. This will be our second shot at Proverbs 21. We're looking at verses 1, 2, and 3. Got a little political last week when we talk about the king's heart. And, uh, and that's fine. We're not shying away from things. If the Bible talks about it, we've got to teach it. That's what we deal with. And so the Bible does talk about politics. It talks about our public life. It talks about our married life, our professional life. Our, I mean, just everything is, uh, is covered by the Word of God. And so as we proclaim the whole counsel, we don't uh, duck from anything or hide from anything or, or try to... Uh, you know, accommodate different folks and and, uh, and and their feelings on particular matters. We just teach the truth and let the Word of God deal with with feelings and and uh, and so forth. So the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. Then verse three: to do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than uh, sacrifice. All right. Before we do start, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Call upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before You this morning thankful for grace and truth and asking for Your faithfulness to bless our time in Your Word that the Word of God is would go forth as alive and powerful as it truly is and not be limited or impaired in any way by human weaknesses, Father, on the part of the speaker or on the part of the hearers. Or, uh, Father, we also pray for a hedge of protection around us that you would hinder anyone from coming in here and, and bringing us to harm or stopping what we're doing. Father, uh, we have concerns based on recent events, but we thank you that you... Uh, you know all things, Father, and this has been a part of your plan since the foundation of the world. So this day is yours. Use it to glorify your Son. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Proverbs 21, and uh, picking up what we looked at last week, opening, uh, realizing that the chapter is a little bit different than perhaps some other chapters uh, in that we have more references to Yahweh than we've had in other chapters. There are in some chapters of Proverbs where Yahweh doesn't appear at all. And that's kind of a, an interesting thing. But uh, here we have verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. Just to start the chapter with, with uh, bang, 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 three references in a, in a row to Yahweh. Uh, so in verse 1, uh, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of Yahweh. Anytime, if you're reading a New American Standard Bible or New King James or several of the, the recent publications, what they like to do if you ever see the word Lord where everything is capital letters, the L is capital, the O is capital, R is capital, D is capital, um, that's, that's usually an indicator that it's the, the, the name Yahweh that's being represented there. Uh, so the hand of the Lord, the hand of Yahweh, He turns it wherever He wishes. And then in verse 2, it's Yahweh who weighs the heart. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but Yahweh weighs the heart. And then verse 3, uh, to do righteousness and justice is desired by Yahweh more than sacrifice. So the holy name of, of the Lord, Yahweh, uh, the name that came to be kind of idolized by uh, rabbinic traditions and so forth, to this day Jewish people will not pronounce it out loud. So when they see, when they see it on the printed page they substitute Adonai or they substitute Hashem. They talk about the name rather than trying to vocalize uh, Y-H-W-H. We vocalize it. We don't have any issues with that. We can, we can call it Jehovah, we can call it Yahweh, or we can call it the Lord, or things of, of that nature. And we don't really idolize the four letters as they appear. Then the chapter closes with two more references at the, at the end of the chapter, verse 30 and verse 31, uh, where uh, there is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against Yahweh, and uh, the victory belongs to Yahweh, we're told in verse 31. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. And I like that. I like that final point there, because 
you know, we, we do rest in God's sovereignty, but that doesn't excuse us or that doesn't give us a license to be slugs or to ignore normal uh, battle preparations or things. We should still get our horse ready. We should still be dressed and ready for combat. But uh, ultimately speaking, of course, even with all of our preparations and activities, uh, we're still dependent upon the Lord for His will and, and uh, the victory that He supplies. So that's how the chapter opens and closes. And then under point two we started dealing with the water issues that we have here, channels of water. That can be a great thing when it's directed appropriately. Uh, and this is a point of study. I actually copied this from some of our notes back in chapter 17. Water is terribly destructive when it is out of control, but it is incredibly powerful when directed to an effective purpose. And, and I, I think in, back in chapter 17 I used Noah's flood as an example of out of control water, and that was not right. Uh, the, the Noah's flood was not out of control water. It was very controlled. God knew what He was doing uh, when He not only sent the rain and the water from above, but when He also unleashed the, the fountains of the deep and unlocked the uh, storehouses of water from below and, uh, and so forth. So anyway, if I, if I preached it wrong in chapter 17, I hope I got it right here in the sense that uh, the Noah's flood was not out of control water. It was incredibly powerful when directed to an effective purpose. And that's true in many places. And this is true uh, you know, uh, in several uh, biblical examples when water is redirected or when water is, is uh, channeled. If you can use it for irrigation, you can use it for, for engineering purposes and other things. And in fact the fall of, uh, of Babylon occurred because of rerouting the, uh, the course of the Euphrates River. And so uh, there's, a, there's a benefit there in, uh, in different activities. Anyway, so we went through this and we discussed the hand of God in directing human history, turning the hearts of the political rulers. And uh, the hand of God, I don't want to repeat everything we did last week, but the hand of God in the life of Abimelech in, in Genesis 20 was very beneficial to Abraham and to Sarah. Or uh, the hand of God on Cyrus, the hand of God on uh, Artaxerxes, these different Persian kings that are mentioned in Ezra 1, Ezra 6, Ezra 7, Nehemiah 1. You have examples there, and then the, be- the greatest example is on uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. In any event, the uh, hand of God on, in the hearts of political rulers, and so we can ask for that. We can ask for God to touch the hearts of our president and vice president, of our governor, of our uh, senators, of, of our Supreme Court justices, and, and so forth, that, that uh, God's hand will be upon them to to shape the direction their heart goes. And that's uh, like channels uh, for the water. He doesn't coerce the volition, but He does design the channels so when the water ends up where He wants the water to end up, (laughs) then we understand that. So God's sovereignty is true and the choices we make is also true and we don't uh, don't turn sovereignty versus volition to to an either or scenario. I want to move on this morning now and start looking at verses 2 and 3. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. And so a principle that we've seen before uh, back in a previous chapter, chapter 16, uh, self-reflection is often insufficient. You know, if, if every man's way is right in his own eyes, then what good is it for you to evaluate what you're doing? <laughs> you know, because we have a tendency to approve what we're doing. Yeah, we're fine with it. And, uh, you know, because we're doing it and we want to keep doing it and we like what we're doing. And uh, even if we think, well, maybe it's borderline or it's approaching a line, we always find a way to, you know, some wiggle room to maybe move the line just a little bit to, to justify what we're doing in, uh, in different ways. So, uh, and, and you notice it's not talking about unbelievers or making a distinction between uh, the righteous or the wicked or any such thing because it says every man. You know, it, it's, it's making a universal blanket statement as it applies to humanity in general. Of course there can be exceptions to the rule, that's always the case in Proverbs, but nevertheless as Proverbs is declaring this as an absolute rule describing Uh, humanity in general, we want to understand it on that basis. So the A part is declaring one truth, the B part is declaring a second truth, 
we combine them to see this truth and recognize that Yahweh is the, the opinion we want to go with. <laughs> that uh, in terms of evaluating uh, my marriage, my uh, parenting, my, my pastoring, my, uh, my ministry performance, uh, the, the, my fruit bearing, uh, just everything that, that needs to be evaluated in the course of, uh, of things, that it's not my opinion that matters. What, what does the Lord think of this? What's His standing? If, uh, if He's the one that we're waiting to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, or uh, on the other hand, the alternative is you wicked, lazy slave. Uh, then that's that's going to be his judgment that he renders at the bema seat. And uh, and I, I, no, there's no verse I see anywhere where he asks us to put some input in there and say, no, what do you think? You know, uh, I think each one of us will give an account of ourselves before God, but that's to stand there and receive the declarations that he bestows the gold, silver, precious stones that he purifies, and to bid farewell to the wood, hay, and stubble that he burns up for all eternity. And uh, that's the, that's the uh, activity that we have to deal with. Alright, so let's look at some of these verses and remind ourselves I think this point and the next point um, shouldn't take terribly long since they are review doctrines from previous chapters. Proverbs 16.2 the recognition why uh, self-reflection is often insufficient. Um, Proverbs 16.2, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. And so, you know, sometimes we're not entirely clear on why we're doing the things we're doing. We may have multiple motives. We may have, um, you know, some motives that are appropriate and some motives that are not exactly appropriate. And if we can blend those well enough, we mix them up well enough, then we convince ourselves that, well, it's all okay because the good motives outweigh the bad motives. Or uh, they at least excuse, you know, the bad motives. You know, well, yeah, okay, maybe that motive isn't the best, but it's understandable given that I had this additional motive as well that I was trying to. So we, 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 we feel better about the, the bad motives if we can balance them out with, with better motives, that it's just human excuse making. It's like Adam and Eve pointing their fingers and making excuses for the choices that they made. And uh, we can't be doing that. The, uh, the motives are what gets weighed, and this is the, what uh, differentiates between the gold, silver, precious stones on the one hand, the wood, hay, stubble on the other hand, because it could be the same exact activity. But the motivation behind the activity is what turns the gold into stubble. You know, or the stubble into gold, as, as the case may be. So the Lord weighs the motives. And when we get to Proverbs 30, we'll see this again. In verse 12, there is a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. There is a kind, oh, how lofty are his eyes, and his eyelids are raised in arrogance. There is a kind of man whose teeth are like swords, and his jaw teeth like knives. And this is kind of an interesting expression here too. It even starts in verse 11. There is a kind of man, or there is a kind, who curses his father and does not bless his mother. And in talking about this and describing certain people this way, not everybody, but certain people this way, it does grab the attention. Because if there is a kind, you have to be aware of that. And, and, and not only do you have to be on guard against that particular example, but then also to be mindful of the fact that God designed this creation where everything does what? Everything reproduces after its kind, right? And so if you're observing a trend, if there is a kind uh, who is pure in his own eyes yet not washed from his filthiness, what do you think that, that man's going to produce or that woman? What, what, what kind of... Uh, you know, you just watch that. Watch that repeat itself in the next generation. Watch it repeat itself in the next generation. Watch itself, and, and you just have to wonder. When, uh, when we reap the wind and, and, and sow, or when we sow the, the wind and reap the whirlwind, just ask yourself, is this not the kind of, of wickedness that's replicating and intensifying from, from one generation to the next? That's a curious thing to me. Anyway, this is um, a door, a generation... You start looking for missing doors in some passages or present doors in some passages. You can, you can make a lot of jokes with the, the Hebrew word for generation being the word door. 
because it sounds like the English word door, you know. And and um, in uh, in Houston, when I was presenting the Thousand Generations, and there were certain passages that that don't have the word door in there, but you understand that it's talking about generations, even if the word door isn't there. And yet, some uh, some of the pastors were were wanting to know, you know, well, show me the door, right? Because they want to they want proof that the the number that's applied there is talking about generations. If if God's wrath is to the third and to the fourth, but His grace is to a thousand generations, to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. Anyway, but here it's door. There is a generation who curses his father. There's a generation who is pure in his own eyes. There is a generation. Or there is a kind, there is a kind, there is a kind. So anyway, more work to be done on that. I suspect we'll have that in um, Genesis because everything we see in Genesis from people to animals to plants everything is producing the generations after their kind and this is, uh, the, this is the design uh, for this physical world. Alright, so that's uh, chapter 30 and uh, we also have Luke, Luke 18. Jesus Christ speaking here. He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Now that's a problem, okay? And this is where self-reflection uh, can lead to an awful lot of arrogance because not only do we deceive ourselves and pat ourselves on the back and get all impressed with how what a great job we're doing, uh, but then the, the tendency is, is to on a relative scale of righteousness to be dazzled with ourselves and absolutely uh, you know, superior to everybody else. And if you think that uh, you're better than everyone, then um, it's, it's the, the perspective here that Jesus is dealing with. So anyway, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And it's obvious who's the one that thinks he's better than the other. It's the Pharisee. It's the religious uh, chap that... that uh, tells God how great he is. So the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God I thank you that, and it's not really a thanksgiving prayer if you're bragging, right? It's not, uh, it's, it's not even a humble brag, it's worse than that. It's thanking God for, you know, not making him this way, but, but thanking God that he could be this way so as to impress God with what he has become. I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. So he's not offering true thanksgiving for the grace of God who has blessed him and taught him and molded him and shaped him and made him the man that he is. No, he's, he's thanking God that he has made himself the, the man that he is to this day. That all the good things he has done is now worthy of earning or deserving something. Because, you know, he fasted more than the other fellow and he gave more than, you know, it's all about what he has done. The tax collector, on the other hand, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And I think standing some distance away is indicative too of the fact that the man didn't want to be like he, you know, you come in and you decide where you're going to stand and where you're going to be, who you're going to be near, who you're not going to be near. You know, this is pre-COVID social distancing. But honestly, he wants to be off to a place where it's just him and the Lord. You know, he doesn't want somebody overhearing his prayer life, doesn't want somebody overhearing his confessions or his pleas for mercy or anything of that nature. And I suspect he also couldn't, you know, probably couldn't stomach listening to what the, the other guy was praying about, you know. So he, uh, he put some distance there, and I think that's pretty smart. And then uh, beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This is, this is the true humility that Jesus is talking about here. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. On an experiential justification basis, one of these believers uh, has treasure laid up in heaven as a result of their prayer meeting participation. The other one does not. So everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. So this is uh, 
again, the Lord's illustration here, I think you take the title verse in verse 9, trusting in themselves, trusting in themselves. Interesting, the verb patho, to persuade. You, know, you can talk yourself into anything, really. And is that where your faith is grounded? What are you doing? So, no, don't, don't even examine yourself. Paul says he doesn't examine himself. He, we, we're accountable to the Lord. God does the examination. If there's something that needs to be adjusted, God will do that. If you have a different attitude, God will make that clear. And uh, adjustments that need to be made, he'll, he'll handle that. He'll spotlight those for you. So we can be thankful for that. It is much better to call on the Lord to do the searching. And these are some of my favorite passages as well. Psalm 139. which does not have 24 verses. Yeah, it does. Here we go. Psalm 139. Yeah, I normally think of the earlier verses here when he talks about being born, not hiding from God. All right. Yeah, I normally think of those earlier verses, and I got to start thinking of Psalm 139 as a longer psalm. All right, there's there's a lot more in there, but it's a Davidic psalm. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. That's a good thing, and that really how it opens kind of addresses how the psalm closes in the bottom verses there, doesn't it? You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. This is why it's stupid to lie to God in your prayers. I mean, He knows better anyway. He knows you're lying. He knows the truth. And, uh, you know, can, all confession is, it's not an admission. God knows what you did. But He wants your agreement with Him in the true confession whereby He can restore you to fellowship. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too high, I cannot attain to it. I mean, to fundamentally just surrender your life to God's omniscient wisdom, it's a glorious thing. And it's not fatalism. It's not you know, throwing your hands up and saying, well, whatever will be, will be. And, and uh, no, it's not. It's, it's a complete faith rest in, in, in amazement and wonder. That he knows every what if, he knows every scenario, every decision, every alternative. And, uh, and you can walk with him on that basis in a, in, a, in a very intimate way. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You know, you cannot hide from God. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. You know, he has complete sovereignty in every dimension. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. I think wings of the dawn is an angelic reference and the remotest parts of the sea is another angelic reference. It's, it spans uh, more than the physical universe. Even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. This is also the psalm where we talk about the um, in utero existence while he's in the mother's womb. You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It doesn't say you, uh, he says you wove me. You wove me. And I, I fully accept the personhood of the, of the, uh, of the human being that's in the womb. He, he, said, he doesn't say you wove the body that eventually became me after I was born and received a nashama breath. See, I don't teach the nashama like Colonel Thien teach, uh, used to teach the nashama. He doesn't say you formed what became me. He says you knew me. You wove me in my mother's womb. All right. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance in your book all, were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. As soon as you have the formed substance you've got day one there in the life of that human being. 
How precious also are your thoughts to, uh, to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Isn't that great? <laughs> you can go to sleep and God's in charge. And when you wake up, God's still in charge. And thank you, Lord. It's, uh, it's a new day. Thanks for watching over me. All right, almost there. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. The imprecatory prayers, common in the Old Testament, we're, we, uh, we're to love our enemies and we don't pray for their death in the New Testament. They speak against you wickedly, your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Now I put a bookmark there, I've got that red exclamation point because at one point I did a study on sanctified hate, on the, on the hatred that God hates which is not a sinful hatred. And it's, uh, it's not the opposite of love. It's actually the flip side of the same coin. When you love truth, you hate the lie. When you love God, you hate idolatry. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? He's offering this up as an indication of his like-mindedness with Yahweh. And if he didn't hate and he didn't loathe in this way, then he would be out of step. He would be, miss the mark. He would fall short of the glory of God. In other words, it's a sin to not hate in these contexts. I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. So not only do we want to digest those two verses, right? We want to fully digest verses 21 and 22 so that we can process the, the doctrine and the sanctified hatred. But notice too, these verses, 21 and 22, are immediately connected to search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me. That is not an accident. That the hatred, the loathing, the uttermost most hatred is not contradictory to search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my anxious thoughts, see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. That needs more work. <laughs> okay? Those verses right there, I think that this whole Davidic mindset, and um, if, if we struggle to see, now where's our application? How do I have this mindset? Remember, David's the man after God's own heart. And this is David's the greatest type of Christ that we have. I don't think there's anyone that, uh, that had more love and hate in the, in the Davidic mold until you get to Jesus himself. And then you wonder why he's flipping over tables and, and making a whip and, and doing what he's doing in the, in, the, uh, in the temple there. I think it's because of this, uh, this love-hate that he has with, uh, with his Father and with the Word of God. Alright, so it's much better to call on the Lord to do the searching. Because of course the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. If we try to, if we try to uh, search ourselves, our, our wicked heart's going to work against us. More deceitful than all else and desperately sick, who can understand it? The sin nature we inherited from Adam poisons the heart. And the longer we uh, were around, the, the worse that sin nature gets, the worse damage it does to the heart, the cardia, the inner man. That's why we need the heart to be renewed. That's why we need the Word of God to, to cleanse us. I, the Lord, search the heart, attest the mind, I get even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So we are accountable. Accountable for what we do, but accountable for what we think. Our very ways, our attitudes, the Word of God is a critical judge of what? The thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so beyond the results, there's also the intentions that are uh, accountable. Alright, so that's verse 2. Again, it's a review from chapter 16. And then verse 3. To do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. So here's a more than proverb, a better than proverb. Many of the better than proverbs that we have um, get expressed in this way. And this is, so righteousness and justice is better 
than sacrifice. Sacrifice is good. Uh, worship is good. God desires worship, and we, we need to be worshipful in our priesthood. We need to have the appro- uh, appropriate uh, practices in our Christian gatherings and our church assemblies. We're not saying that sacrifice is wrong, or uh, today we would say uh, church attendance, Bible class attendance, prayer meeting, communion, uh, anything that we're doing in church, anything we're doing as a church body, or any spiritual life observances that are uh, designed for the church age. All of that we can kind of lump under the heading of sacrifice, ritual observance, okay? But the first item is what he desires more. This is more good, better. It is more desired. To do righteousness and justice. That has the priority in God's ledger. And so the point as we look at it here, kind of a long one. I'm going to start with the second part, with the sacrifice. Because it is true. God has desires and specifications regarding how He is worshipped. <laughs> you know, I left off the most important verses. Okay, I just saw on the slide. How did I leave off Genesis 4? You know, Cain and Abel, vegetables and animals. God has desires and specifications regarding how He is worshipped. we'll start with Genesis 4 (laughs) and then we'll go to the ones that are on the slide we're going to hit especially John 4 maybe that's what I did I saw John 4 and I just thought that I had included Genesis 4 already but now notice once we we make that clear and that, that actually needs to take some time because um, I think there's a human rebellion that started with Cain and continues to this day that feels like we can approach God just any old way we, we want, any way, you know, any way we think we want to. Anything we, and then we expect that God has to accept who we are and what we're doing and, and why we're doing it and He should be impressed by it and should accept it and be thankful for it. And, and that's not true. That's not biblical. That's not right. That's not what He designed. And um, you know how we how we do what we do doesn't matter, and this is a this is a big issue, in 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 this church and every church you attend and everywhere you go, and we we stop and say now you know does it really do we have to have a piano and hymnals can we can we sing off the wall can we have guitars and drums or what do we you know the things that we do we have to be clear why do we do what we do and is it within the parameters that God has established as being acceptable. Recognizing, of course, that we live in the age of grace. We have liberty. We have freedom. We have more flexibility. We don't have a book of Leviticus that tells us, "Thou shalt sing three hymns on Sunday morning." And you know, we don't have all the nitty-gritty procedures and details to the to the the nth degree that Leviticus represented for Israel in the Old Testament. So we do have flexibility within the broad parameters, but it's still not the sky is the limit, do whatever you want to do. And we're going to be clear on that. Now, once we establish that point, we're going to continue to give additional consideration. He does have desires and specifications regarding how he is worshipped, but his desires and specifications for our treatment of others, in other words, doing righteousness and justice as we interact with other human beings. His desires and specifications for our treatment of others are greater in His own estimation. So God Himself evaluates His desire for worship, but He also evaluates His desire for our treatment of others. Doing righteousness and justice. And He estimates that that outweighs that righteousness and justice outweighs sacrifice. That's his estimation, not ours. 
because it says is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. And so we're going to see this, not only in Proverbs 21.3, but we're going to see this, and the Lord taught this, because it comes out loud and clear in Hosea 6, and every time the Lord told the Pharisees, have you guys even read Hosea 6? They, uh, they didn't, even after He told them to. So this becomes part of the, uh, part of the battle. It's also in Micah. You say, well, nobody reads those minor prophets. I mean, come on, Hosea, Micah, I mean, seriously? Yes, even the minor prophets. But it starts in 1 Samuel 15 in the example with King Saul. Understand, and here's a bottom line issue. I should have made this a separate point even. That slide's too crowded. I don't like it. <laughs> All right. Religious observance cannot make up for deficiencies in one's personal walk. And here's the thing. Some people think, oh, well, if I just get extra religious, that makes up for my secular life that's a train wreck. No. No. First of all, you're making excuses, and then secondly, you're failing to um, recognize that God Himself has prioritized, and God Himself has said, your doing righteousness and justice is more important than the, the sacrifices you think is making up for the fact that you're not doing righteousness and justice. So we'll see those principles as well. All right, let's start with Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. It doesn't take long. Here's the first dysfunctional family. Okay, <laughs> and, and uh, which is literally the first family on earth, the only family on earth. Adam and Eve fall into sin. What would have happened had they not sinned or had they conceived before they sinned? We don't know. It's a what if question. But uh, God's plan is not thwarted. God intended for sinless humanity to be fruitful and multiply. And even though that did not happen uh, on the first Garden of Eden, uh, or even uh, that was the first Garden of Eden was Satan's, but the second Garden of Eden, Eden was Adam's. And he told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, and they did not until they became sinners. But he will, his plan will be accomplished. There will be sinless humanity, fruitful and multiplying. It's just going to be on the new earth when he replants the tree of life. And uh, sinless humanity will procreate for a thousand generations after the millennium. Anyway, the man had relations with his wife Eve. And um, <laughs> when uh, I was, uh, my pastor friend in, uh, Drew Freeman in, in Oklahoma City, we were having a face-to-face -face video chat the other day. And he asked me, he said, how long do you think it took for Adam and Eve to fall into sin? I said, not long. <laughs> I said, how long did it take Adam to get his wife pregnant? Okay, and, and we both laughed and honestly it took him less time to, sit, to become a sinner than it took him to get his wife pregnant. And she was brought to him naked. So what does that tell you? <laughs> okay, how long did it take for him to become a sinner? So they had relations, she conceived and gave birth to Cain and said, I have acquired a man-child of the Lord. That's the literal rendering. I have acquired a man-child. I have Cana. So she names him Cana. She names him Cain. I have Cana, acquired a man-child of the Lord. Remember, she'd already heard the promise that the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. And uh, in the application of the, the expectation that Yahweh will, uh, will be the deliverer, she doesn't know. She has a baby in her hands. And again she gave birth. Now she has two babies in her hands. She gave birth to his brother Abel. And so um, the rabbis all felt that the, uh, there's only one mention of conception, but then there's two birthings. And so they concluded, well, we got one conceiving verb in verse 1, and we have two birthing verbs in verse 1 and verse 2. Obviously, this must be twins. And um, okay, I guess perhaps um, can't prove it one way or the other, but nevertheless, there were other sons, there were other daughters, there were other pregnancies in, uh, in this. We don't learn about them until we get to chapter 5. But it came about, oh, uh, again, verse 2, more gap theory, okay? There's a gap inside verse 2. 
Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. All right? They're no longer babies in her hands here. That They've grown up. They've left home. They have their, they're now adult sons. They have their own wives. They have their own um, property. And they're not living in Adam and Eve's house anymore. Abel was a keeper of flocks. Cain was a tiller of the ground. So they obtained their career status uh, as, as many men do. And uh, the, the men are known by their career pursuits. And uh, then another gap. It came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of the flock and of their fat portions. So now these are adult sons with their own career pursuits and their own uh, spiritual life, their own worship, their own, you know, they're not just falling under Adam's spiritual headship. They're not just, uh, you know, counting that they're, that they're covered by whatever sacrifices Adam happens to bring. They're not uh, functioning under Adam's sacrifices, they're bringing their own sacrifices. Does that make sense? Generational accountability. They're standing before the Lord in their own terms, in their own, in their own accountability. Now the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. Well, what do you know? Yahweh has regard. Yahweh has desires and specifications regarding to how he is worshipped. And he has every right to do so. He is God. He is the creator. He is the one worthy of worship. But for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. Notice too there's two regards. The Lord has regard for Abel, first of all as a person, for Abel personally, and also for Abel's offering. There were two regards. And and the Lord esteemed both of them. But for Cain, no regard. And his offering, no regard. And this is God's own perspective. So Cain became angry and his countenance fell. (laughs) And the Lord said, why are you angry? This is a a marvelous faithfulness on God's part. When he asks questions, he already knows the answer, but he's asking questions. Like with Adam and Eve, where are you? Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree? You know, every question is a question he already knows the answer to. But he's providing the opportunity for confession, for repentance, for honesty, for worship. He's very patient here with Cain, even though he has no regard for Cain and no regard for Cain's sacrifice. Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, and the doing well, we're going to study the 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 adjusting yourself, you know, you, you're functioning according to God's standard, meaning you're getting saved by grace through faith and you're, you're conducting your, your life according to the Word of God. Those who do the good deeds, those who do well. Will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. The sin nature is a vicious beast and its desire is for you. That's going to take some work because before we get to this, the judgment on the woman and the pain in her childbirth, yet your desire will be for your husband. It's the same language. Eve's desire for her husband is identical. The language that that communicates that is identical to sin's desire for Cain. The way the sin nature is ready to pounce on Cain is the way that Fallen woman is ready to pounce on fallen husband. Okay? So you want to be in fellowship. Okay? You want to be saved. You want to be in fellowship. And you want to function according to God's design. Anyway, so Cain told Abel, his brother. Another gap. And it came about when they were in the field. 
So they weren't in the field when Cain told his brother. How did that conversation go? I suspect Abel was a man of faith and reflected what God had said and was able to expand on it, was able to explain it, was able to agree with it and communicate. They'd both been taught, evidently, about the blood sacrifice, the need for blood. Anyway, Cain told his ba- uh, Abel, his brother, they're not in the field yet. But then it came about when they were in the field, so there's another gap. Tons of gaps in all these verses. You know, you're not a kook if you think that that a verse has a space in there with some things that happen in the middle. That's probably the case in most of these verses. It came about when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel's brother and killed him. So the first murder in human history. And uh, sparked by what? Sparked by an unbeliever who hated a godly believer living in the Word of God. How about that? I throw this out there for our pastoral students. If you're taking a seminary exam or if you're uh, preparing for ordination, and I ask them to think about it. You you think you're going to be a shepherd? All right. You realize the first martyr was a shepherd? (laughs) Are you ready? Ready for pastoral ministry? All right. God has desires and specifications regarding how He is worshipped. Let's look at Exodus 28. Here, without reading an entire chapter. But this is how... uh, I'm going to read the whole chapter. No, I'm not. So um, Aaron is being dressed out. His sons are being dressed out. They have uh, garments. They have... um, In fact, Aaron specifically has garments. Uh, that are uh, that have a special pocket here for the Urim and Thummim. And uh, in his ephod, let me get down through this. Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel and the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. So he's going in there not just to represent himself, but he's got the names of the tribes, he's representing his nation. You shall put the breast piece of judgment on the uh, the put in the breast piece of judgment the urim and the thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. You shall make the robe with the ephod all of blue. Shall be an opening at its top in the middle of it. Around its opening there shall be a binding of woven work, like the opening of a coat of mail, so that it shall not be torn pomegranates on its hem. Say, does all this matter? Who cares? I don't like, I don't even like pomegranates. Can we, you know, we do bananas or something or apples? Um, why pomegranates? I don't know. Because God likes them. Who knows? Okay. Maybe that was the fruit that Adam and Eve ate. I mean, we don't know. God said so. That's why. How about that? And uh, why does it bother you so much? <laughs> then a golden bell and a pomegranate uh, alternating around the hem of the rope. It shall be on Aaron when he ministers and its tinkling shall be heard when he enters and leaves the holy place. It drives me up a wall. I'm glad I don't have to tinkle when I come into the pulpit. Its tinkling shall be heard when he enters and leaves the holy place before the Lord. Notice though, so that he will not die. Ooh. Okay. I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm lighthearted trying to crack some jokes, but that's not a joking matter. Not for Aaron. Not for his sons. Not for Nadab and Abihu. Yeah, they're not laughing. All right. You know, they went in, they brought strange fire before the Lord. God said no. And they didn't even get the, the patience of the why has your countenance not fallen you know, speech kind of thing. They just brought their strange fire into the Holy of Holies and God blasted them. And so you see the seriousness of it there in verse 35 and then you get down to verse 43 again it's 
They shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they enter the tent of meeting or when they approach the altar to minister in the holy place so that they will not incur guilt and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and to his descendants after him. This is such a, a fierce priesthood and, and ferocious. I mean, you, you talk about reverence before God and the fear of the Lord, and it stands in the amazing contrast to our priesthood in Christ, whereby we come boldly before the throne of grace. We enter within the veil that is His flesh. We have every right to stand there, having our hearts sprinkled clean and our hearts uh, cleansed with a pure conscience. And, and what a joy that we have in our Melchizedek priesthood. It's not this priesthood, but our accountability is much more severe. Leviticus 21, 16-24. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your offspring throughout their generations who has a defect shall approach to offer the food of his God. You start to think, wow, why does this matter? So not only do you have to have the right parentage, the right genetics, the right genealogy, the right, you got to have, you know, the, the, the Levitical priesthood was based upon earthly requirements. More than that, though, there is a bit of a, of a, of a what do I want to say? I don't want to say a eugenic component to it because eugenics is evil, but the, there is, a, there is a, an attitude towards uh, birth defects, towards the, and it's, it's common to humanity that, uh, that in various places that there are birth defects and, and you're born with an extra finger or you're born with a deformity or you're born blind or, or, or what have you. It's just fallen bodies in a fallen world. It's not that the kids sinned in the womb or that his parents sinned or that it's divine judgment for consequences of anything. It's just we're living in a fallen world. And it's not licensed. You don't expose the baby. You don't, it doesn't, uh, you know, the pagans would. The pagans would, would see a, a, a child with a deformity and, you know, that was just, they would expose the child and be done with it and, and try again. All right. But Israel did not and Christianity did not. Some of the greatest human rights in human history have come about with the Judeo-Christian worldview grounded in the scriptures. Anyway, uh, no man of your offspring through their generations who has a defect shall approach to offer the food of his God. For no one who has a defect shall approach a blind man or a lame man, one who has a disfigured face or any deformed limb or a man who has a broken foot, or a broken hand, or a hunchback, or a dwarf, or one who has a defect in his eye, or eczema, or scabs, or crushed testicles. See, I wonder if my uh, rosacea would count for that, if, uh, if uh, you know, I'd get inspected by a Levitical priest and say, uh, you're out of here. No man among the descendants of Aaron, the priest, who has a defect is to come near to the offer of the Lord's offerings by fire, since he has a defect, he shall not come near to offer the food of his God. He may eat of the food of his God, both of the most holy and the holy. You know, you're not going to remove him. He still is a priest. He still is entitled to, to partake of, of these meals, but he's not going to serve as a priest. Shall not go into the veil or come near the altar because he has a defect, so that he will not profane my sanctuaries. And what does cause a, what is a profanity? See, we just think profanity is a swear word. Profanity. Okay, vulgar language is the least of, of uh, profanity in God's sight. And the holiness of God and what is holy and what is profane. Satan, remember, Satan profaned his sanctuaries by reason of his splendor. For I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So this becomes the issue. So Moses spoke to Aaron to his sons, to all the sons of Israel, and that's that's how they operated. Deuteronomy 16, 16. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. So every Hebrew male.
All right. The husbands, the fathers, the adult sons. I think when Jesus appeared at the age of 12, it was likely his first time to stand before, uh, to, to go to the temple there in his own generation, in his own spiritual accountability. But three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, at the feast of unleavened bread, and the feast of weeks, and the feast of booths. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. <laughs> Don't you dare come to Come to the temple, come to the, uh, you, you better bring the sacrifice. You better have the, the appropriate sacrifice, the appropriate drink offering to go with it, the appropriate uh, financial gifts, and all these things. You know, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Now that principle gets repeated. That's a, it's a concept. We adapted, of course, in the church age. We live in the age of grace. We don't have the tithe. We don't have the have to. We have the grace-giving whereby it doesn't have to be 10%, it can be whatever you, uh, any believer wants it to be. To be. But still, the, the admonition about appearing before the Lord empty-handed, that, that better hit uh, believers in grace harder than it ever hit Israel under law. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God which he has given you. You know what an insult it is to show up empty-handed? It's like you're saying, well, God, you haven't really blessed me. <laughs> Are you kidding me? The God of grace, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, you think He hasn't blessed you? How dare you show up empty-handed? What are you doing? Give as you are able according to the blessing of the Lord your God which He has given you. So yes, God has desires and specifications regarding how He is worshipped. John 4. We quote this a lot, but I think we, we uh, don't listen when we're quoting it. Right? Don't we quote God as spirit? Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Do we understand what He's saying there? So the Samaritan woman, here's this woman at the well. And this, this marvelous woman of faith, she's a believer, she's looking for the coming Messiah, Messiah is coming. That's the, uh, when she says Messiah is coming, that's her testimony to her eternal life. And she wants to get an answer, and when she says, I perceive you are a prophet, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, you people say in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. The Samaritans had their own Pentateuch, Samaritan Pentateuch, which is useful by the way when we compare it to the Hebrew to, to find out where some of the Hebrew rabbis changed things. Uh, we have the Samaritan Pentateuch, and they had their temple, they had their worship, they had their priesthood. It was all on Mount Gerizim. Of course, the Jews were on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And now she wants to get her question answered because she's face to face with a real prophet. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The pending church age about to be revealed doesn't have a geographic locality whereby we must go in order to appear before the Father. An hour is coming. Then verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. The Samaritans ripped off the Hebrews when they copied their Pentateuch and created their counterfeit temple. Not the other way around. But an hour is coming and now is. So it's not only the, the pending church age that's about to be unveiled after Christ ascends, but even is a present reality now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And this is why external ritual is insufficient. External ritual, if it is phony, because in spirit and in truth you're just a big liar bringing uh, animal sacrifices to cover your tracks, God sees through that. And you can't use external ritual to overcome your internal heart reality because the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And then here's this phrase, for such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. Isn't that beautiful? God the Father does the seeking. 
He's looking for worshipers, true worshipers in spirit and in truth. And it's interesting to me. This is, a, this is the real, this is the, to me, this is the real seeker movement, right? There's churches that try to be seeker friendly. You know, they set themselves up and they, they, they try to, you know, get visitors to come in and they want to be friendly and they want to be uh, non-threatening. They don't want to, uh, they don't want to, you know, preach anything too harsh that's going to scare away the, the seeking people. And, and, and anyway, it's, it's, it's a methodology that Willow Creek and some other churches have done to try to be seeker friendly. <laughs> And, um, but I think that version of seeker-friendly is, uh, I'm over time, jeepers, that version of seeker-friendly is not paying attention to the fact that it's God the Father who's doing the, the real seeking. All right, we'll pick up here next week. Lord willing, rapture pending. Father, thank you for this day, for this time. It got away from me, Father, but I thank you and I praise you and uh, trust that you will take hold of this class and feed your children. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right.